but it is like a cheap uh, stand-in until we get their good one, so. <clears throat> Who knows the theme verse of my study on God and government? Anybody remember? If, I, if you had asked me this yesterday um, before I was looking at yesterday, last week's stuff to review, I wouldn't probably be able to call chapter and verse. But the theme idea is that for us, for believers in Jesus Christ, in this age, in which the time in which we live and in all times, our faith is not in the political process or our rulers. It's never been, it's never supposed to have been. And shame on us if we put our hope in human artifice, human devices. <clears throat> Pastor, we didn't know you were going to say shame on us, but we should. We should really uh, watch it as far as where we are getting our sense of who we are and what we're about. The theme verse was 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, totally out of context, therefore on basis of your great salvation that God has saved you, Therefore, because of your position in Christ, because of God's securing your eternal destiny, because of Christ, his death for your sins and having risen from the dead, the only solution to our great problem, which we're all born with, separated from God in sin, therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not become conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in your, all your behavior, because it's written, you shall be holy, for I'm holy. We are experiencing a little bit of a tech update here, so thank you for your patience bearing with us on this. This is the cup mic if you want to switch it over. We'll test that. Can everybody hear me yet? Testing, testing. <clears throat> Sorry about the adjustment, but sometimes these things have to be made. Prepare your minds for action is 1 Peter 1.13. And the reason I've selected this verse is because of that word completely. The Apostle Peter was inspired by the Holy Spirit to say that there is nothing else that should occupy the prestigious position of you as God's image bearer hoping. There's nothing else. There's no intervening event to hope in if you're fixing your hope completely on the grace brought, to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I believe this attitude is the context for American stewardship of the franchise of our political process. And be careful about this. In this study of God and government, I'm not talking about God and politics. Politics is a messy thing because it means the people. And the people are messy. They're all sinful. And in every case, listen, in every case, the humans that are governing are flawed and broken. And none of them, none of them ultimately is exemplary. When people say, well, I just can't endorse so-and-so because of their character, their morality, whatever. I, apply it to every single person running for office. 
everybody in, involved in the process because they're flawed and sinful human beings capable of extreme wickedness. Every time there's some sort of interview, after there's been some sort of crime disaster, some murder or worse, if that's possible, every time there's some interview, what do they say, the neighbors say? Well, I just can't believe it. I just would never have thought that of him. And, and then multiply that times 50, or, uh, 100 senators and 535 House of Representatives and nine Supreme Court justices and one president and vice president and all the people and all the king's horses that work within that cabinet. They're all that people, that person that the next door neighbor said, well, I just, couldn't, I just never would have thought that because they're fallen sinful humans. And when we're hoping in man, that's not hope. And that's really important to grasp when we're talking about God and government. I'm not talking about God and politics. I'm talking about the principles that the people who should be in power should be exercising. I'm talking about the thoughts that we have, we who are in power with the franchise, need to commit ourselves to. And that is work that most people are not willing to do, to think in terms of principle, in terms of propositional truth, in terms of the absolute things we're certain of that we have from our Creator. And I contend that this topic of God and government is a huge biblical topic. And I'll try to show you that a little bit today. For example, do you know how the, word, the, the book of Proverbs relates to government? You know how the book of Proverbs relates to government? Think about that. Because it probably relates to it in a bigger way even than trying to think through the places that mention the king. By way of review, what we talked about last time, the first thing we said was the beginning of human government, and I'm calling it human, adjective human government, is Genesis 9-6. And it's handed down from God, the creator of all things, the sovereign of all things, the origin of all authority, which is our big topic today. He gives this delegated responsibility of man over man in Genesis 9 and verse 6. And it's shocking to us in our modern sensibilities until someone kills our loved one it's shocking to us that the origin of human government is God's delegated responsibility not right but responsibility to execute the murderer it is capital punishment what does capital mean in capital punishment have you ever thought about this do you know what the capital is of capital punishment It's the capital. It's the head. Off with his head. It's saying, that's what it means, that the the, the ultimate thing you can do is kill someone. And this this is the origin of human government, and we're off to the races right now with a biblical worldview on human government. How many people in American government, and I mean the voters, the electorate, how many people think that is where human government came from? But... How many of our framers do this very well? How many people in a biblical worldview were involved in the process of delivering what we have today in government? As we said last time, the problem with government is it has guns. It's got the sword. The police officer carries the sword and he's authorized to use it. And it's life and death. If you get a little bit of 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 an electric jolt, when you come in, in the presence of the authorities, right? Remember the blue light? Your little, little, there's a reason you have that. They're the authorities and they carry the sword. 
and I'm not talking about, well, in our country, the police are trying to kill you. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that they carry lethal force because the government has the, the, the fiat from the creator of lethal force. This is why it's so important. That's why you have to be serious about it. Well, let's just see what happens. We don't like how it's going, so let's push the other button and see if that'll be different. You're giving the right to life and death to, as a child would. You know, I, I think I'll pick this toy instead of that toy. And that's our insanity we live in today. It's a huge thing that human government has the power of life and death. And in fact, capital punishment is the origin of God's delegation of human government. If that's the case, then it sure is important to get this right. It sure is important to think about this very carefully. And part of my intention in this study is to become more theologically aware of what we're doing with our lives. The end of the message today is joy. The end of the message this morning on human government is joy, but it's in an unexpected place. If we don't get to joy and I say amen, tell me, hey, what about the joy? Because we really need to get there. Not a lot of joy in politics. There's not going to be a lot of joy next, next week or when I, on the 8th. It, it's not going to be a reason for your hope. It may turn in a direction that slows things down. It may. It looks like it will. But we've seen it recently. We've seen it before. All right. The second principle was we saw God critiquing human government in 1 Samuel 8. He authorized it. He ordains it. He delegates it. And then he critiques it in 1 Samuel 8. And it is because Israel asks for itself a king. Remember God's long diatribe about, okay, they've asked you, Samuel, for a king. But I just want you, by special revelation from the prophet carrying God's message to the people, you tell them that I said, that's what Samuel does. He's, he comes, this is what God says. You tell them that I said, this is what it's going to be like when you have a king. And the ultimate problem with that government of the Gentilic kings, the kings like the Gentiles, the ultimate problem is they're going to take away your freedom. They're going to remove from you your self-determination. They're going to take your money, a tenth. They're going to take your property for eminent domain purposes. The king needs this. They're going to make you their subjects. The kings will. And this will be the outcome. You're asking for something, but here's what you're sacrificing. And I want you to, if you're ever thinking about this, that the theme is freedom. Remember 1 Samuel 8. Every one of the things that God is saying you're going to have that you're not going to like is some sort of infringement on their sovereignty over their lives, on their own decisions that they'll make in their own uh, experiences. Your kids are going to be taken by them to go be their soldiers, to be their laborers. They're going to become their farmers. The kings are going to make you their subjects. And that subjugation is beyond Genesis 9-6. It's something that turns out God wants you to be in subjection, Israel, to himself. He is your king and you're his subjects. And that was the arrangement. And they didn't have kings. They had judges, which were proxies. They were representatives of the king with executive power, but only a limitation, a limited power. But nope, we don't like the, we don't like the brand. We don't like this model of God as our sovereign and the judges as the proxy uh, steward. We want to be 
subjects of a, of a divine monarch or something like the Gentiles. All right. All that means is that you're elevating the judge to a place that he didn't occupy before. And that gives him, the, in his ideas, the responsibility. I mean, it's me. We must be enthroned. That's how kings think. We have to take this to ourselves. And that enthroning of the king above that proxy stewardship that, that Samuel carried was not God's intention. It wasn't his initial setup for them. Now, now on the other hand, be careful. In, in the law, there is provision for how the kings would operate. You're going to copy your book of Deuteronomy. You're going to live it out. The king is always still, in Israel, supposed to be God's proxy. And that makes the way, paves the way for Messiah, the ultimate subordinate king to the creator, who is himself the creator, the son, ruling as the, in the flesh of man under the father. So human government is a problem. In both instances, I hope you've seen that I'm not, I'm, we're not an anarchist. We're, we're Bible-believing Christians and we submit to authority. And we'll look at Romans 13 in just a moment. But I want you to see Genesis 9-6 is the government killing people. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is the government taking your freedom and, and subjugating you and, um, and moving you towards enslavement. Because enslavement is, uh, there are interesting definitions of slavery. Think about this for just a second with me. What is it to be a slave? What does it mean that you are a slave? Anybody have any thoughts? Somebody else is making your decisions for you. So, so someone else is deciding. Who said captivity? I'm sorry. Yeah, you're, you're, in, you're a captive. You don't have... Uh, captive means that um, someone invites you into the, the house, right? And you say, oh, thank you. Here's a room for you. Oh, thank you. Well, make yourself comfortable, and dinner is at 6. And say, oh, great, thank you. And then they close the door, and you're like, oh, what a wonderful place, what great hospitality, and then you hear it. Click. Now I'm not just in a hospitable circumstance. I mean, same bed, same cushy pillows. But now I can't leave. Now I don't have self-determination. I can't go about freely. Okay? Well, these are, these are part of what we think of enslavement. And now incarceration, is incarceration the same as enslavement? Someone in prison? Is that, is that a slave? No. See, it's, we're, we're like, well, no, we don't believe it. You know, we're Americans. We've, we've done away with slavery, so but we still incarcerate. And it's an interesting thought about that when you start really thinking about what things mean. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, so the slave's perspective of total dependence on the master for livelihood, for sustainment, I know where you're going with that, and I, I think you're right on. But isn't the biggest problem we have with enslavement that one human bearing God's image is saying he owns another human who bears God's image when those humans belong to the creator? Isn't that really our bottom line problem? When someone says, you know, you're mine... We, we think, you better be my, my wife or my husband. You better be my spouse. You're mine. And that sense of possessiveness that's, you know, it's absolutely essential in marriage that there is a possessiveness of marital, you know, ownership. You know, that nobody else can fill that role of spouse, husband or wife for the other. That's, that is a possession. It, and it isn't, you're my property like you're an, an object, but there is a, a divine possessiveness in marriage. But beyond that, I mean, you're my kids. Hey, these are my people. But 
But when you start to say you're my property, like not a human with agency and responsibility to God, but you're my property in terms of my determination of what you'll do with your life, of what happens to your productivity, of those kinds of things, that's, that's really what we tend to think of as slavery. You've lost self-determination, you've lost freedom, you've lost agency, and even you've lost the dignity of saying, no one owns me but my creator. And so there's, there's all kinds of affront to what we're talking about from a biblical worldview as God's image. God made man in his image. And so that's, that's really our problem is there's this interposition of another human that's, that's on the same level saying, nope, I'm above you existentially. So that even the, the concept of ownership is, is, in, is in view. And so all these dynamics are involved in the complicated thing that we call slavery. And I really appreciate your point, Richard, about, um, about dependency. Because agency or responsibility carries with it sink or swim. That safety net that the government people talk about. That safety, well, there's got to be a safety net. Well, the safety net starts to become the basis for my dependency on this interposed power, and you're back to the problem of tyranny. All right. In fleshing out a biblical worldview of the relationship between God and government, I want to talk about the first principle of all of government. Not human government, Genesis 9-6, but before that, all government. The first principle is divine sovereignty, that God is God and we are not. It's such a great thought. By, by the way, there's a hint here. The conclusion of the message on joy is that thought. If you can't rejoice that God is God and you are not, you're missing the, the meal. You're starving at a feast. God is God and you are not. And love it and live it. And that means that there's somebody that knows better than me. That means that there's somebody that wants better for me than I want for myself. So many things are in that statement that God is God and we are not. God's being, let me say something theological, as the self-existent personal eternal context for all reality. That's a big um, subject side of the sentence. Now let's use the verb, presupposes his sovereignty. In other words, sovereignty is an inherent concept that has to go with the very nature of God as the omnipotent, self-existent, personal, eternal being. All these words are important and they're all vital for a correct view of God and then of yourself and of your destiny. God is not dependent on anyone to exist. He is self-existent. He reveals himself to Israel as the God who is. He calls himself Yahweh. And that is based on the Hebrew verb hayah. And we believe God created all of this. The language, the concept of being, communicating that concept through language. He's not surprised that Hebrew uses hayah so that he's looking around for something to describe himself as, uh, playing on that word into Yahweh. But he knows and he thinks and he wants from eternity past to connect himself to the very sense, the very idea of existence. Nothing exists except that he makes it so, and he's the only, only thing, being, entity in the universe that is like that. 
He's the only th- being or thing that is not contingent on some other cause or source. Self-existence, we don't mean that he causes himself to exist. We mean that existence is the very essence of his being. And now we're using, I'm saying existence and being, and it's the same meaning. I'm chasing my tail trying to get at this idea. But that's where we end up. God is, and nobody makes it so. We are because God is and makes us be. See what I mean? You've gotten to the very basic principle of all of the universe. It is the creator who has always been there. And creation is personal in the sense that God is a personal being before creation. Now, I don't mean that the material is personal. That's the point. It's not personal. It's material. But the origin of the material universe that everyone wants to say that's all there is in the materialistic frame of our time. Now, the, 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 the origin of that, what caused that is a personal being who has always been there, one God and three persons, self-existent, personal, personal, personal. What do you mean personal? I use this word exclusively in the theological sense of personhood. I'm with Tertullian and using this word to describe God. Everything Tertullian said I don't agree with, but I like personhood, that God is a personal being. In other words, he's not a machine. He's not a computer that if you feed it the right program, you get the right outputs. That's not the creator we're dealing with. He's not a limited, flawed, sinful, selfish person like we are. A lot of times we think person or human implies sin and stuff. No, he's an infinitely holy and righteous person, but he's personal. He thinks, he wants, he prefers, he desires. He acts. He is responsive to that which we say and do. Prayers actually do something because we're talking to a real person who is really arranging things. All things work together for good in Romans 8.28 because God personally makes it so. And that's that's the baseline principle of reality. There's nothing before that. And we're, we're little babies, as Calvin said, lisping at him. We're, we're little baby talks saying these things, these marvelous, profound concepts that God is the self-existent, personal, eternal context for all of reality. And that fact means or presupposes his sovereignty. I was here first. God can always say that no matter what the other thing is. And remember, in terms of apologetics and what we call the, I believe, the cosmological argument for the existence of God, if you don't go with a personal being who designed everything and made it, if you don't go with a creator as the origin of all the reality, then you have to have an eternal regression of impersonal causes in in nature. You have to have eternal matter. You have to have... Because you say, well, no, it's the Big Bang. Well, what's, there's something before that. You, you, get, you keep going back and you get this eternal regression of impersonal material causes. And when you really let that thought sink in and you say, which one makes more sense? A personal eternal being who's been there from eternity past, who at, at some point makes everything. If you talk about that versus there's this just eternality of what is and it's always been and there will never be another. It seems like the second one's more of a fairy tale to me. I, I find it extremely satisfying when I think about the nature of reality. 
aren't we talking about government? Can't we get into talking about taxes again? Well, see, it all comes from this. Everything flows from this metaphysic, from this nature of reality. As the sovereign, that's the word, sovereign, uh, this is not pronounced sovereignty. Just want to make sure Preston City Bible Church can say the things the way they need to be said. Sovereign, he's the sovereign, and he has sovereignty. Sovereignty. Not sovereignty. Sovereignty. Never forget the lesson I had in history class on popular sovereignty. God is the ultimate basis for all government if he's the sovereign. You see how that flows? He's the ultimate basis for all government. You know, I want to test that. I want to think about that. Is that true? Is God's personal being and his sovereignty the source of the government? Well, Genesis 9, 6, there's only eight humans on planet Earth, and God tells them, here's the deal. Here's the new deal in the covenant, the, Mosaic, the Noahic, Noahic covenant, Genesis 9, 6. So, I mean, I've got biblical evidence of this. But let's talk about human governments. Does this mean that what they do is godly? Universally, no. And it never is. Ever heard of King Ahab? He was supposed to be ruling under the Mosaic law as his legislation that he would use as, as the basis for his kingly enactments, for his, uh, his executive function. There was a legislation of the Mosaic law, perfect, good, holy, and righteous, and it's giving because written by God. Never been a better law. There's never been a better source of legislation than the Creator. And yet, what is Ahab? See what I mean? I'm going to pick him. What about Ahaz, Ahaz? In, in fact, when you read the kings in Israel, it's the ones that get it right, more than wrong, that really stand out. There's just a handful. David, you know, first half. And then he has a problem that's a major problem, several capital offenses, and then he recovers and God forgives him, lets him stay as king, but then he becomes a proverb. Don't. In this greatest capacity of delegated authority, don't disobey God with momentary lapses because you can't stand the discipline that comes to you. And, he, and the whole nation sees it in these installments and the Absalom revolution and all that. David okay, is, is the one that's the paradigm for all the kings. When he's, when he's hot, he's hot. Who else? Solomon, idolater. Followed his pagan wives and became an idolater. Who else? Well, skip to Hezekiah. Not, not, I mean, there are some intervening, but pretty much Hezekiah, Joab, or uh, Josiah, Hezekiah, Josiah. And Manasseh's second run. He's the worst king, and then he re- repents, and then he kind of starts to prove a little bit. There's, a, there's some good stuff with Uzziah. I'm saying the kings of Judah are basically, for the most part, demonstrations of what I'm saying that uh, human government is a big fail even with perfect divine legislation. But God as the sovereign is the basis for all delegated authority or human government. Let's test that in our time. Is that going on? The Capitol in the United States? All these big bills, they can't write an actual bill anymore. They have to do this Everybody gets a piece. It's $10 trillion or something. Everybody's got in 10,000 pages of legislation. We passed the bill. 
what bill? The one for the year. This is it. This is all we're going to do. And it is basically a massive um, uh, pork barrel thing to feed all the, the voters that are going to vote for it. We can't legislate anymore. Is God and his sovereignty the basis for American government? He absolutely is. And I didn't listen carefully, believers. I didn't just say he is making us a theocracy where we are worshiping God as a function of government in an official way under the, um, the, the mosaic administration of, of theocracy. It's not. It's, and, and that's the challenge of this concept of human government. Sovereignty is God's right to rule over all that he's created. Is that a fair summary? Does that help? It's God's right to rule over all he's created. In other words, I'm saying sovereignty means God's authority. Sovereignty is God's right to rule over all that he has created. And this right of rulership is secured by his omnipotence. This is a really important way to understand the creator with whom we must deal. The big idea is sovereignty. Well, like God is sovereign. First thing we teach the little kids in the essence of God. Well, God's sovereign, but um, so he has the right to make decisions. Does he have the power to back up that right to decide? See what I mean? We, this is always a frustration when someone has the right to decide, but for whatever sinful reason of intervening circumstances doesn't have the power to carry off the decision that he's made. Ever been in that situation? Sure you have. We've all been there. It's very challenging. It's very difficult. God doesn't face this challenge. Omnipotence is there. And these are the things in which we rejoice. God is sovereign. Sovereignty is really a, a consequence of omnipotence. God's infinite power, consequent fiat or authority, is also characterized by perfect righteousness and justice. The God you serve not only has all the power, but he's perfectly moral in all his decisions. He's perfectly righteous and good. You can't get behind God with the concept of good to try to assess him because good is that which comes from God. That which is truly good is ultimately from him. Oh, that's so good. God is righteous and God is just and God is sovereign and God is omnipotent. And that's the source of all government. Okay. Are you with me in Habakkuk up on the wall? How long, oh Lord? <laughs> you're sovereign, you're omnipotent, you're righteous, you're just. And yet, government is wrong. Government is broken. Anybody have an answer for this? How can it be? How can it be that God is sovereign and yet all this is happening around? How, how, how do we assess this? How do, what does the Bible tell us to do with this? That God is sovereign and he's omnipotent and he's righteous and yet all this is happening. Anybody have an answer? I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't fudge and say, oh, that's great. That's a perfect kingdom. Love it. So great. It's not. It's a mess. What do you got? Right. You leave it to Preston City Bible Church to talk about God's grace. 
If there's a question in Sunday school or VBS, it's probably the answer is Jesus. Upstairs is still Jesus, but let's refine that a little bit. God's grace, God's mercy, God's forbearance. There's a, there's a concept here that we're struggling with because of our 80 years, you know, or whatever we get. There's a concept here that's a problem for me and you. Forbearance means another thing besides righteousness and omnipotence and sovereignty. There's another thing, there's another concept you have to add to the dimension of this to, to really round out another dimension you have to add to this concept, I should say, that kind of helps us see it. What does forbearance imply? What is the grace of God or God's mercy? What does it imply? This happened. You're sovereign. What are you doing? Like, what, what's the thing I'm missing? Instantaneous things are a reference to time. I want this now in my time. I see it, Lord. I see it, Lord. Lord, do you see it? I see it. You see it. How many hours in prayer am I going to spend reminding you? Do you know that this is happening? Well, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient toward you. In 2 Peter 3, the answer is that our timing isn't God's timing. We can see the moral need. God, there's a differential. We need you to close that gap. We need you to solve this. God knows, and he's working it, and he's telling you through the word. But this is the part that's so, I think, frustrating for us is time. What day is it, October 30th? Well, tomorrow is October 31st. Speaking of time, 507 years ago, we got our Bible back. 505 years ago, 1517. 505 years ago, Martin Luther said, but what about the gospel? (laughs) And he did something that uh, touches on human government. He is subordinate with authority under his frame, interposed himself for the the sake of those beneath him in the sense of authority to the higher authority that was between him and God. And he said, but God said, and you're wrong toward God. He punched up and he was right to do it. And we're standing here with open Bibles and open hearts to God through his word because he did that. There's something within time. It's also the week before the midterm elections. There's never been a more important historic election in American history. It's true. The further you and I go on the timeline to the right, well, that's that's to the right for you. The further we go, the more important the elections become because we're burning out the emergency break, because the, 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 the decline is accelerating and we, the brakes become more important, and we feel like we're burning them up as we, as we accelerate downhill. We're like, stop. I mean, I'm with you. I want to I throw on a rocket booster and blow back up the hill. That's what we want the elections to accomplish. But my, my thought is likely. I'm a very pessimistic person with human government. I think you're, the best you could hope for is some, some pretty good brakes or some... Some, some sort of breaking function that slows down the inevitability. Pastor Dave, that's not very great awakening thought of you, but uh, TikTok is just so powerful. The, the, the distractions are so, so big to get people to think metaphysically and ask, what are you really doing with your life? And how much 
how much time do you really have and what's it for and live your life for God and human self-governance before it ever gets out of your household. That's really what has to happen. That's where the conversation goes is to God's institutions and your individual walk with him. That's where the government problem gets solved. And it's the only place it gets solved. But let's get back to God and optimism because we can look at man and be very cynical. God's infinite power and fiat is also characterized by perfect righteousness and justice. That's good news that you have a perfectly righteous person who has infinite power. Lord Acton works in a fallen frame. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, as they say. I don't know who Lord Acton, I don't know him very well. We weren't friends, but everyone quotes him. And he's a helpful, it's a helpful thought because of the fall, because of our inherent sinfulness. You give me power and I'm going to become more capable of self-destruction or destroying others. And if you give me absolute power, um, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, Hitler. You're like, you want to throw in your, um, your favorite bad guy in history who had too much power and use it. And where do you get that power? The government has guns. Government. Power of the sword. <clears throat> Sovereignty is divine authority. In Romans 13.1, people like to bring this verse up out of its context and out of its historic context and out of a, a, an application that is difficult across the ages. We can do it, but we need to be careful with it. Everyone is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. This is used to, for example, uh, accuse the, the American War for Independence, those that were patriots, of, uh, of villainy. The Tories like to throw this at us and say, no, you shouldn't have fought for independence because you were violating governing authorities. And maybe that's where you are on a facile in interpretation of Romans 13.1. It's not where I am. I dogmatically assert what Paul says in Romans 13.1-5, and I don't think that the, the patriots in the War for Independence were opposed to it. But it's complicated. I want it to be real simple, easy. Well, we all want it to be simple. But the problem with life is that it's hard and you have to think. What I want to draw out from this passage is not that um, we have an easy way to critique anyone that says no to government. What I want to say is we have a very clear statement of where government comes from. <clears throat> the, um, the idea... If you just think about who's in government in America right now, the people that make the news. I don't want to name any of them. The people that advocating socialism generally are doing so from a, an atheistic and materialist worldview. The people, the, the squad, these people are generally approaching things from an atheistic or materialistic worldview. You say, what about the Muslims and I really don't know much about the worldview of the Muslim ladies in the squad. I'm not sure how that works out. I think I know, but it's very dark and has to do with spiritual warfare. But, um, but I'm just saying, like, uh, the, people, the people that are insisting on, on socialism are coming at it from a socialist mindset. 
I'm sorry, from an atheist mindset, right? Like that's, that, these go hand in hand for a reason. And it is interesting that their delegated authority that they have is actually from the creator of the universe. He has delegated it down to them. And you basically have to say, what a waste to be given this that's a direct hand down from the creator and not know its source or honor him with his execution, with its, with its use. And that example of the atheist in power who denies the basis for his power, that's what we all are when we don't marshal our resources as stewards of the creator who gave the resources. The stewardship is the authority, the governance over whatever you're a steward of. The senator has a stewardship, and it's his vote for his decisions and proposition of legislation and so forth, this function of a senator, right? Just for example, it's a stewardship delegated down from the creator. It's got immediate channel that it's gone through to get to the person, but it ultimately comes from God in Romans 13.1. You and I are that person. When that which has been commended to us as stewards is not, in our thinking, God's. When we're not working within his design or his intention with what he's delegated to us. Because all authority comes from God. Let's bring it right down to pet ownership. There's a right and wrong before God as a steward of the puppy or of the kitty kitty. There's a, there's a right and wrong, and it's, it's not life and death of a human, and it's not as important as training children in these things, but there's a relationship. See, everything that's given to us has been given to us by God. And when we disconnect ourselves from him in our determination, we've got, that, there's your problem. That's the problem with government. So you're, you, if you're tracking with me, you probably see a pretty heavy need for revelation now. Because if all authority comes from God, and God wants that authority exercised in his interest for his purposes because it's delegated from him, then we better try to figure out what that is. The caliphate people have an idea of how authority is supposed to flow from Allah and how they're supposed to exercise that authority in his interest. Don't they? Do you know anything about Islam? Quranic Islam? We can complain about the governing authorities over us. But we need to look at our own exercise of delegated authority. What are you doing with it? Authority is the right to decide. All authority proceeds from God. What does that mean? It's ultimately the right to decide. This inescapably establishes an over-under stasis or status. An over and under. Somebody's making a decision, somebody's under that decision. It is the nature of authority. There's no other way. Every effort to share some other than this over-under stasis is not going to be a successful exercise of authority because, well, that person and I are equal, but there we share decision-making. That's shared authority. There is no under there is just 
over. What happens in such a case? Civil war. Or it's really unwieldy. But I would say there's an over-understasis and a leader-follower dynamic biblically in leadership, in, in authority. An over and under status, but then a leader-follower dynamic. And I'd say these are different. If you're the person in authority, you have the right to decide for those under that authority in the, in the brief of whatever that authority includes. So your boss, for example, let me see, I want to just show you how life is. I'm just describing how it is. Your boss at work has the right to tell you about what applies to work. The desk is supposed to be set up this way or however the boss says. Now, a wise employer knows how to uh, pick his battles and say, these are the things that we think are valuable in our, in our values in our organization. And these are the things we kind of insist on, but uh, we want to give you maximum freedom or whatever to do to execute the mission. But, but there is the over under basis in that relationship. This is what we're doing. And the person in authority has the right to make those decisions. Now, your boss can't tell you that you must not worship the creator. He can't. He can try to, but he doesn't have the right to. Right? Because his authority is coming from God. All authority comes from God. All authority. Oh, I thought this was just government. What does government mean? And why do you think that? All authority proceeds from God. So your boss has a brief, has an authority from God. When the boss says, I don't want you praying out loud or silently during work hours. Okay, O king, you can say that, but I don't have to obey it. And there you have the challenges to authority that we see throughout the scriptures that are rightly expressed. There's a right time to say no to an intermediate authority because you're saying yes to a higher authority. And that's the dynamic, that's the challenge of this concept of all authority coming from God. If you're an authority, you have the right to decide for those under that authority. I didn't say they're going to follow you. I didn't say that it's going to go well. There, are, uh, there is a, 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 a criminal justice system, right? But you have the right to say within the framework of that, of that delegation of authority. And so when it's when it, this is the recipe that we use to make the cakes here at this bakery, well, the person that owns the shop has the right to say, this is the recipe. And the person under that, the, the baker, the ingenious baker under that authority has the right to then choose to make it with that, with that uh, recipe. But he also has the right to say, O king, live forever. Have you thought about nutmeg? No, I never have. Well, I've seen that, da, da, da. Well, um, see, what it, see what it comes out with. And you have a relational thing going on, but it's within the brief, within the framework of that authority, with that right to decide. And you, as the subordinate, become the salesman. You become the one to convince, to, to bring about the decision, but it's that person's decision. See, that's what I'm trying to show you with authority. It's the right to decide. And it's so vital because we're talking about freedom. We're talking about the problem of government in 1 Samuel 8 is you lose the right to decide. Authority isn't the right to sit around while everyone else works. Biblically, that's the opposite of authority. Authority is the right to work so that you can lead others in the work. If you're under the authority, you do not have the right to make the decision.
Some of you need to write that down. If you are the authority, you have the right to make the decision. If you're not the authority, you don't have the right to make the decision. This is getting very complicated, isn't it? Sometimes, Pastor Dave, you're playing the little ABC blocks with us. But this is how it is. This is the nature of authority. And it's hard to think this through when your back is up with an authority situation. As a subordinate that's, that's got a difficult task ahead of you with those over you. Or as a senior, as a superior, dealing with subordinates that won't follow you. It's tough. And so it's, it's good to, to go back to basic principles, tie our shoes a little bit, and think about what this looks like. Let's talk about the authority dynamic. Well, this is actually the authority static. Stasis, I'm calling it. This is the stasis. This is my language. This is what I'm thinking of authority. There is, based on the fact that God is the, uh, the supreme authority and he's delegated it down, there is an over person and there's an under person and you can't get away from it. And within the bounds, now there's a bounds in which that authority exists. And that's what the little, little legs are meant to show. There is an over, there is an under, and there is a frame in which that is exercised. And that's the static reality of authority. Now, wait, wait, wait. So let's test that out. You have authority over me for whatever the, the, the limitations of that authority includes, whatever decisions you have the right to make and I have to submit to. And then I have a choice in my own self-governance to say yes or no to your authoritative decision. But I'm supposed to say yes. That's the moral choice with this structure. But then you lose the status of authority. Do I still have to submit to that authority, to your decisions? No, because you're no longer in the status. The stasis is removed. You don't have the over and under thing anymore. Someone else does now. So in our government, this is a great thing. We, we tear this down and rebuild it all the time. We're supposed to. They didn't want to have a, a multi-generational entrenched stasis of class over class. They wanted to have uh, regular elections, House of Representatives every two years, Senate every six years, President every four years. The idea was that you would keep refreshing this, but you would always have it. There'd be an over and under within that within that frame. That's the, what I'm calling the static reality of authority. And, and I defy anybody to show me how this isn't the case in every instance of God's delegated authority. What's the authority dynamic? You have the leader and you have the follower. Now, those of you in leadership, maybe this will give you a chuckle. The leader moves. He's not the pusher let me lead you from behind with my, um, with my uh, early or late 18th century, late 19th century or 18th century staff as a sergeant pushing the troops. We've got this long staff and we line up the sergeants to push from behind to make sure the squares stay together, right? We're, we're behind you all the way, you know, that, that kind of pushing authority. No, it's leading. It's pulling. Boy, is it pulling. <sighs> let's go. Let's go. Get some moments. Momentum. Leadership. This is the framework in which his decisions exist. He gets to decide where we're going. The good shepherd leads me beside uh, uh, streams of, of, uh, of uh, quiet water. He, he's, he's leading me. This is, this is dynamic. This is the motion of things. That this is where we need to go. And whose decision is that? 
That's the leader's decision that's been delegated. It's the authority is the right to decide. And this is the most important exercise, I think, biblically of authority is this is where we're going. Jesus says, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. And he demonstrated it by washing their feet. And so he showed them and he did it. And then he said, now, come on, let's do it. And it's an example setting thing. But this is the dynamics, I believe, of authority. This is what authority is supposed to be. The authority decision here was, this is who we're going to be. This is what we're going to do. And the, uh, the follower is supposed to uh, follow that. Because he doesn't get to decide the movement, the direction, the vision of the thing. He gets to decide whether or not, for his self-government, he's going to go with what the duly constituted authority said. That's the dynamics, I believe, of biblical authority. Now, I'm obviously demonstrating a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples, of God and Adam. I'm demonstrating every encounter of authority over, under, or let's go this way and follow in the Bible. And think about this if you're a leader, how tough that is to see that come on behind you. Come on. Come on. I'm showing you. I'm coming back and saying, I just showed you. Did you see it? Okay. I'm going to show you Jesus does this. He washes their feet and says, now I've done this. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you did this. <laughs> I did this as an example for you, that you would do the same, that you would meet each other's needs. Right? So love one another as I've commanded. And so I showed it to you, and then I told you I showed it to you, and then I said, you are not greater than me because there is, there is a stasis. You're not over me, Jesus says. I'm over you. But I have taken the towel, and I've washed your feet. I've become your servant. This is the direction we're going. That's the decision that's been made. That's what you are now responsible to, to follow. You see what I mean? It's dynamic. It's not just, I'm in charge, and you're under me. That's not how it works. It's that because I'm in charge, I have the privilege and responsibility to set the tone, to, to say where we're going, and then, and then there's following. That's the idea, it seems, throughout the Bible on leadership. And I want to close on this thought. It must be very frustrating in a, from a human perspective to be God with you and me. It must be very frustrating for him to say, this is the way we're going. I've given you every possible example. Well, I just don't know. Maybe if I read it in the Greek, it'll be different. <laughs> if, I read, if, I, if I understood Hebrew and Aramaic, then maybe we could really see that it's not quite that way. No, it's just, it is this way. And so it's frustrating Pastor, you said you close on joy. Here's the close. If you'll get with this and let God be the leader, you be the follower. Learn to love. God is over and you're under. Learn to function within your design as God made you. Let us make man in our image. Let them rule over the works of our hands. Genesis 1, 26, 28. Let, let us make man in our image and let them rule. Delegated authority. If you'll get this, that God is God and that you're not and that there's this over under and you will embrace it and say, God, I'm struggling with this. Let me embrace it. There is joy that you've never imagined. There is, there is freedom. There is peace. There is I am fitting together in my design with the reality in which I've been framed. And if you've never experienced this, my, my challenge is get there. Own this. God, you're God and I'm not. This is what we summarized in the prayer study we did, thy will be done. 
Thy will be done was about um, God having his way in every prayer. It's always the case in biblical prayers. God, you have your way. There is joy here for you. And then when you put it into a dynamic frame and you say, this is where God has said he wants us to move. This is what he wants from us. And you start making that move. Your conscience is clean. Your ambition is being satisfied because you know you're pleasing to him. Our Father, thank you for this wonderful grace you've given us of self-determination under your authority. What a challenge it is. Father, so often we fail to exercise the self-determination, this volition in a way that is concordant with your design. But you've given us the answer in your son's example. There is joy for us inexpressible and full of glory because we have you as our creator. We have you as our savior. We have your instructions. Father, let us embrace it. Let us walk in it and live in it. I pray in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen.